0: Whether you have a diagnosis or not, I don't care. I'll teach you how to find what's causing your health struggles using the blood work you already have right here on this podcast, but also in my new book, Why Are My Labs Normal? Go grab it on Amazon and let me know you love it and appreciate the knowledge by leaving a review for both the book and this podcast. Practitioners. You can now register for the In This Together live event with me in Orlando, Florida, February 20th, 20, 21st, and 22nd. Grab the link to register below, get all the details, and know that we're in this together. We're going to celebrate you at this event, and I'm going to bring in the best mindset, marketing, and business experts. But more importantly, I can't wait to meet you in person and give you the biggest hug. See you in Orlando in February, 20. 20- 21st and 22nd if you haven't started using systemic formulas supplements yet you should be go to systemicformulas.com and mybiome.com m-y-b-y-o-m-e to learn more you can also come join me inside their private facebook group for practitioners called systemic formulas clinical nutrition everyone else can learn more about them and their amazing supplements and their amazing results on systemic formulas instagram page all right Let's get started and happy holidays. Welcome to the Beyond the Diagnosis podcast with me, Dr. Kylie. I have a very special guest, friend, and colleague with us today. Her name is Margaret Blume, right? Yeah, that's it. Yes, I thought it's spelled B L U M I E, but it's French. So it's Blume, correct? Yes. French Canadian. Okay, French Canadian. Um, she has had numerous experience in the labs, and you all know I'm a big proponent of blood work in labs. We're gonna dive into this behind the scenes in lab stuff, all things blood work. But more importantly, I want to start with a couple stories that she has to tell. A couple scenarios where she's been able to help some remarkable people in their later years on in life and the purpose of these stories is to remind you that it's never too late whether you're 5 50 95 105 it doesn't matter you can feel better however whatever your age is welcome on margaret hi kylie you are telling me a story about a my elderly clients.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The older ones are the ones that seem to be drawn to me, but I'm I've been bragging about the fact that I've recently got my oldest client who was ninety five and she wanted help with constipation. But the real reason that she reached out to me was because she knew that when she got in touch with me that she would be able to inspire her daughter to start working with me. Now her daughter was is in her 60s and on multiple pills her mother's 95 she's on one prescription and um but the daughter had been in acute abdominal pain for three decades and so the in a situation like that i always try to get them to i i gently nudge them towards making changes in their diet that feel manageable and um So uh, we started out with a 21-day kind of a gentle cleanse, and, and I said, anybody can do anything for 21 days, right? And she said, yep, yep, 21 days I can handle. And she went on the made some pretty straightforward dietary changes as far as I was concerned, and within two weeks, all of her abdominal pain was gone and it, it always i'm always marvelled by the fact that they don't get advice from their doctors or even the n- nutritionist that she paid for guidance in simple areas that have, can make a world of difference and in the meantime her mother called me all excited that her bowels had functioned like a normal adult for the first time in years and she was just so thrilled and And it it makes my heart sing that I can empower people to wellness
0: in that way. What were those dietary changes that they did? Oh, they
1: were pretty simple. Um, The first thing that I always do when someone is having a problem with digestion is look at inflammatory foods. And so the only thing that she really had to do was to give up all dairy and all sources of gluten. And it you don't realize how many areas that you're exposed to those things. She didn't think she could ever live without cheese. And I, re- I always reassure my clients that I'm never going to tell them that they have to give up anything for life. And so 21 days feels manageable to anybody. And usually by that time when they're feeling they're feeling so much better it's their decision not to go back and in the meantime i've in, i've introduced them to replacements that feel just as comforting so they don't even miss what they gave up by them but it's always their decision
0: yeah so they because did because the...
1: people don't get ill overnight they you know they don't get sick overnight their bodies tolerate the insults that they put them through for as long as they can and their symptoms come on so gradually that until they start feeling better, they don't even really realize
0: how sick they were. Yeah. So they did gluten-free, dairy-free for 21 days. Then what next? Mm-hmm. She also had to give
1: up egg yolks,
0: which egg is kind yolks, of odd. Huh?
1: But that's that's what she tested for, egg yolks. Did
0: you t- muscle test
1: it? Yeah. Okay. I do muscle testing. And,
0: and combine that with the interpretation of the labs. Yeah. So she did gluten-free, dairy-free, egg yolk-free for 21 days. What mm-hmm. happened after mm-hmm. the 21 days?
1: We gradually reintroduced the foods that she missed, and egg yolks were one of them. But the other piece that's really important for my clients is that they, and this is the part that they hate the most, is keeping food logs. Because... When you're having, especially with digestive issues, when you're having those kind of problems, you have to track what you're putting in your mouth right down to the cough drops, whether or not you're drinking tap water. You know, every detail of what you're putting in your mouth becomes relevant because it's kind of like a hunt. You're hunting for the clues, the pieces of the puzzle that caused the situation that your body is struggling to cope with. And and as you know, there it ends up affecting everything about you. Your digestive health affects everything about you. And now we're learning that it has to do with your immune system and your mental health as well, not just your digestion.
0: Yeah, your gut. So that's the
1: 21 days, we started reintroducing things. And the one that she, well, actually the first thing she did was have Chinese that was coated with breadcrumbs and it gave her diarrhea right off the bat. And she loved hard boiled eggs. And so we looked back across her food log and her bowel habits and, and within 72 hours of, I think it was less than 24 hours of having a whole egg because she loved boiled eggs. Didn't think about it when she when she ate it, I said, well, right here, it looks like you had a boiled egg. Do you think maybe that was the cause? And um, so she figured it, we figured it out one step at a time. Sometimes sometimes it takes a single molecule of a food substance to cause problems. I think that's true when it comes to sugar. Sometimes it's dose related. So some things like she can get away with... Um, with breaded chicken now now that we've gotten rid of all that inflammation in her bowels but um not whole rolls unless they're gluten-free and she feels so good that she's excited to find new things that are gluten-free
0: yeah to her it's not so worth I, going I back
1: would... no that's exactly right it's not worth going back it's not and now there's so many options in gluten-free You know, once upon a time, anything that you got had no taste and it was like eating cardboard. And but now and I think part of the reason is because the the wheat that we grow in this country is not God's wheat. And and I think it's really inflammatory to everybody. It's just a matter of degree.
0: Yeah. How much and when? Yep, That's one of your favorite patients. You got one more patient that you like this to tell about?
1: Well I had another one another patient who was also in her 80s who really was addicted to sugar but she didn't really see that she was addicted to sugar and she had she was having joint pain so I I they keep a food log for a few weeks I do a, I do an intake and during that period between the intake and the follow up visit for the report of findings they keep a food log And then we start going over the food log and there are so many hidden sources of sugar and, um, that she didn't recognize that she, um, she, she had the hardest time giving up ice cream. So I said, okay, well, let's not, let's not give up ice cream. Let's find you a really good quality ice cream and give yourself you know, have it on whatever day, Saturday night, Sunday night, pick the day that you're going to reward yourself with something that um, is good quality and, and watch your portion. And she, (laughs) and I never heard this from anybody else. She complained to me that she had to buy new pants in a smaller size because she was losing weight. (laughs) But she also noticed five year old. Yeah, she also noticed that um, she didn't have, she had a reduction in brain fog. And um, aside from the joint pain, she also noticed that her vision improved, which she never expected.
0: Yeah, inflammatory removed, inflammation subsides, things start working better. The other thing about her, her name was Stevie,
1: Um was that she realized that this is an ongoing problem. Like for, especially for sugar addiction, what you have to do is figure out what your trigger foods are, what you can have in the house and what you can't have in the house because you won't leave it alone. And um, so once she figured that out, that part was easy. But she, she, even though she's reached her goals, she needs ongoing accountability. So she continues to fill out her food logs. You think twice about putting food in your mouth that you know you're going to have to write down or that you know you're going to have to tell (laughs) someone. And show someone else what you're eating. In the beginning, people are generally not honest about it because they, they don't want to take a look at the struggle. It's really not much different than having to deal with any other kind of addiction. But sugar is harder because... You can you can walk away from substances that your life doesn't depend on but when it comes to food it's a little bit more difficult. Yep. Cuz you have to eat. Yes, you do. And celebrations always revolve around sugar. <laughs> you don't go to a birthday party without birthday cake.
0: Yeah, unless that you're at my house it's it's cheesecake. We do cheesecake in my house for my, for our birthdays. But still, sugar, nonetheless. We happen to go to church together,
1: so she's always scrutinizing whatever I'm eating (laughs) at the coffee (laughs) alley.
0: That's fun. Okay, so there are some examples of it's. It's never too late to begin. Mm -hmm. Whether you're ninety or nine, it doesn't matter. If you have breath in your body, you can change. If you're wanting to work with Margaret, go email her at here's to your health 1994 at gmail.com. You can also find her on Facebook at Bloomie Wellness, B L U M I E. So email again here's to your health 1994 at gmail.com. Now I want to jump into uh, the world of labs. (laughs) Since you were a lab tech for so many years, take us back to that world.
1: Well, I started in. And well, it was. I was doing it for over thirty years, probably close to thirty-five. And back when I started doing it, we uh, we regionally established our normal ranges. And it the way that it was done back in that day, when people weren't worried about trust and privacy, and um, the world had more integrity than I think it does today. um, That we didn't we didn't have to jump through hoops to. Um, get normal blood. Actually, I'll just I'll just tell you how we did it. <laughs> if somebody was coming in, somebody was Let's coming in for a procedure like cataracts or a routine colonoscopy. Back in those days, everybody had routine lab work done. If you went for a physical, you had a CBC, CMP, lipid profile, and uh, urinalysis every visit. They worried about, you know, they were concerned about making sure that you had ongoing health. Now you have to justify it to the insurance company that the tests are indicated. So people very often don't know what their routine labs are unless their diagnostic code indicates that the tests are, are necessary. So it's a lot harder for people now than it was back then. They had routine labs. And so if someone was coming in for a routine lab, yeah. It yeah. That was the normal. If, that was back when healthcare was really healthcare. So, if they were coming in for a routine procedure uh, as a foundation to what we were doing in the lab, we assumed that they were healthy. And we took an extra tube of blood for whatever it was we were creating normal values. And if they were age, age-specific, then we had to make sure we had so many specimens in each age group, and we never created a normal value without 100 specimens, and would throw out the one or two outliers that were high and outliers that were low, and we would create regional normal ranges in that way. But what was different back then in these normal ranges than what it is we're doing today, you and I are doing today, the service that we are bringing to the clients who come to us because they don't feel like they're normal, is that those normal ranges were established on the premise of preventing disease. So these people may may not have been overtly, obviously unhealthy, but we had no way of knowing whether they were living healthy lifestyles. We were just assuming that because they were coming in for a preventive procedure, that they were healthy and so normal ranges were really just designed to to reflect disease prevention where when we're looking at them from a functional perspective we want to create optimum health and so un, like as as i'm i've probably said before when we're looking at a vitamin d level today we want it to be in the high part of what is normal range because we wanna prevent osteoporosis down the road. We don't wanna just prevent an overt vitamin D deficiency. We wanna optimize your long-term health. And so when you take the labs from um, what appears to be normal from the conventional standpoint, and you plug them into the functional normal ranges, the perspective can be totally different and it gives us so much more information about how we can help our clients. And it's also something you can show them and we can measure the progress based on their metabolism. We have the results right in front of us.
0: Yep. Numbers never lie. Now, So 30 years ago, 25 years ago, whenever it was, <laughs> um, you're doing labs and and you're actually taking an extra tube of blood utilizing that as a sample in your lab to create the normal range. Yep, yeah.
1: very interesting. Yeah, but that's the way it was done. That that was accepted procedure back then. It was the way that all normal ranges were. What is it now, do you know? Well, now now and I this I don't really like this at all. The only time that we really have to establish normal ranges today is when we're changing instruments that are doing the testing. So if we get a a new analyzer doing CBCs, we have to establish a new normal range or validate our normal range on the new analyzer. And now most of those, those testings are left up to the manufacturer or the tech that's installing the instrument in your lab. So those specimens may not even be from our region and we we have no control over where those numbers are coming from now there are some labs who still take great um pains of making sure that everything that they do is exceptional because that's the other thing that you have to remember is that the quality of your lab results depends on uh, is dependent on the lab that's doing them not all labs are created equal and uh most people don't think about that but it's true it's true some labs are done in but like they'll do hundreds and hundreds of specimens all at once and they're and they may not actually even be credentialed because now they don't they don't even require that you be certified by the American Society of Clinical Pathologists in order to be allowed to stay open so there's there's a there, there aren't, there are a lot of safeties in place to prevent errors. But in the big clearinghouse kind of labs, there are more errors than there are in the smaller labs. And unfortunately, the smaller labs, like the hospital where I used to work doesn't really have, it only has a lab for emergency room use now. All of their labs are sent out to a larger lab and so you lose control over the quality of the results that you're getting and then you begin to question whether or not they were reproducible from one lab to another which they should be
0: yes and and i get so many questions about like what labs can i can i go use especially from practitioners like what labs can i use if i don't have a license to order, mm-hmm. order? But even more importantly, it doesn't matter if you can order it or not. Like, what labs can I use? And if you were to do a Google search that says, uh, how can where can I order my own labs? You're going to have 10, 15, 20 yeah. results well, of some place that will send you a kit that will finger prick. You can finger prick and then send it back to their lab. And who knows the accuracy? Well, of and
1: the other thing is the specimen quality. When you do a finger prick, if you're not getting a free flow of blood, they're really just testing tissue juice. They're not even testing your blood. So the quality of the specimen and how timely it is, like when I was in charge of urinalysis, I was such a stickler about things and people didn't like that. I mean, the doctors appreciated it, but some of the offices didn't because if if a urine specimen was left at room temperature for half an hour, I rejected it because... Urine is a dynamic fluid. The the glucose that was in it at the time that it was collected is not going to be there an hour later. So, the and, and any specimens that, like a blood specimen, should never be allowed to freeze without being separated. Then it's hemolyzed. Then you're not just testing the fluid part, you're testing the contents of the red cells. And so, the quality is a really big deal. And the best way to find like the the highest credentialing agency for laboratories is the College of American Pathology CAP they hold labs to a, a very strict standard now labs can lie about the results you know they can give the results what the CAP is looking for but most labs that go through the trouble of being credentialed by the CAP really care about their standards or they wouldn't they wouldn't do it and for the blood bank, it's the American Association of Blood Banks, the AABB. And you have to pay to be part of that, that credentialing organization. And it is intense. Both of them are very intense. But they're no longer required to be certified. So that's one way of knowing, of judging the standards of a lab.
0: So CAP holds the labs to very strict standard. Yeah. The AABB is for your blood bank.
1: Blood banks have to be credentialed by the FDA and the and the CAP and the AABB. AABB and CAP are optional for blood banks. They're actually, they're optional for all, all of the labs. But the ones that go to the trouble of making sure they're credentialed, usually hold themselves to a pretty high standard
0: yeah those are things I've never even thought of before which is why I wanted to have you on the podcast because you (laughs) you bring out these ideas I didn't
1: know we were going to go there
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's the part I wanted to hit like where how are normal labs created how are the route lab ranges Mm created 30 years ago versus now is fascinating to me I never would have guessed Mm -hmm. it would have changed um, but speaking of that when they when they change out their instruments, when you said nowadays it only has to be collaborated with the new instrument, how often does that occur? Five years, every ten years, every depending on the amount it gets used,
1: it depends on what your goal is. We went automated in um the urinalysis analysis when when we were never automated or automated, we did the dipsticks manually, but we went automated when. When our staff was running thin, one of the reasons that they'll go automated, like we used to do all of our differentials. This is kind of dating me, but all of our differentials on a CBC were done manually. We we hand counted the number of cells on that slide, and the really? slides, the slide. Well, it was only the white cells, which is a lot less than the red cells. But we did yeah. all of the morphologic interpretation in the and. Counted the neutrophils and monocytes, the eosinophils and lymphocytes manually. We counted everything manually, and and it was all based on the quality of the slide. So we had we had standards for the quality of the slides that we made. Um, I think a lot falls through the cracks because we're not looking at things manually. I think a lot of blood parasites are being missed because of that. You can ask for, you know, for it to be screened, but for the most part. Most of the time, the machines are initially brought in because of staffing, and they're changed out when the technology is advanced. Sometimes companies will have a contract with a specific manufacturer, and then when they upgrade their instrument, they want you to buy the newer model, they'll try to create some kind of a package deal to make it look attractive. But most of the time, they'll... The, if those factors are not involved, then it's usually because of maintenance. It's kind of like a car. If you're investing more in the maintenance or you have your analyzer down more than you have it up, then it's time to get a new one. But the other thing that concerns me about today's standards is that I don't know how many of the normal ranges that they're still using are actually from 30 years ago. And Times have changed. We live in a more polluted world than we did back then, and, um, and, there, and there's a lot that doctors don't, don't realize. Like the fact that the PCR test was never designed for diagnostic purposes. Never, ever. It was designed for research. It never should have been used. The PCR
0: test. The PCR test. Why is that one not coming to my head? It's what's being used to test people for COVID. Yeah, that's what I expected, I thought. And it's a test
1: that's designed, like, they enhance the sensitivity of the test to pick up the smallest, smallest amount of, like, a single
0: molecule can be present. Come on, Margaret. They're supposed to do that so they can blow up their numbers. Well, I think that's
1: probably why it's being done for COVID, but it makes it a very, it's, for di- it's not meant for diagnostics. So, and there are tests like allergy tests. You know how you can give a vial of blood and they can test it for 23 allergies and tell you if you're allergic to red oak or white pine or those tests yeah. are very unreliable very, I mean, it's, 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 and, but they look at those tests as being definitive, you know, and some (laughs) tests, if they're run too soon, like a Lyme Uh, test, the Lyme test of of somebody who's suffering from Lyme is not going to have a positive blood test for six to eight weeks after the first presentation of symptoms. So they go to the doctor, you know, with, with symptoms they do a Lyme test. They say, oh, you don't have Lyme. Well, they, they're they testing them too early for
0: for anything, any antibody to be detectable. How about late? Like if they've been suffering for 20 years and they're like, all of a sudden, they're going to test Lyme. Does it show up then? Yes. It shows up as... The, Once the antibody's there, it's there? Um, yes, but it
1: changes. New antibodies are IgM. So if you have a new exposure, then you have IgM antibodies. If it's like a memory antibody then it's igg so they can they can discriminate between a new infection and an old infection
0: then you said food sensitivity tests or was that just environmental environmental allergies i think it's i think it's probably a combination the food
1: sensitivity one is more um reliable because of the fact that the food molecules are easier to um um, fingerprint sort of, I don't know how to explain it, how they do it. It's kind of like the, the, in the testing process, you know, you and you have talked about in your workshops the, the, um, lock and key for the, our ability to take up iron, you know, and hormones, how they, they go into very specific receptor sites on the cell membranes. Well, we use that kind of technology for testing the presence of, of things in your blood. That's basically how it is, whether or not it takes, whether or not the the substrate that we're putting in the testing media has the right lock for what we're testing in your blood. And that's how we test for the presence and absence of things. So the more that you can, the more
0: closely you can duplicate the lock, the more accurate your test is going to be. See, so much gold. And it's like, whatever just comes out of your mouth, it's just gold. You have so much experience and so much <laughs> knowledge about blood work and labs. And, you know, I talk about the differential all the time, but I think it for me personally, it would be so fascinating to actually see it underneath the microscope because I don't know if I ever have. I'll just talk about these things in my head. I have this idea of what it is, but to see it in a slide mm-hmm. from a blood sample mm-hmm. that was well taken care of now that we're talking to you. From a very high standard lab, that would be, I think, something cool for me to see. Maybe someday.
1: Well, the other thing is that there, no computer will ever match the human brain or the human eye. They can do whatever they want to it. In some areas, it may become more sensitive, but in other areas, it's going to, it's going to fall greatly behind because when we do a stain on the blood smear, we can, dis- we can distinguish whether or not a red cell is redder than it should be or bluer than it should be and whether or not the granules inside those, like the granulocytes are, are a group of white cells, then it really just it describes those white cells that contain granules. And neutrophil is one, eosinophil is one, and a basophil. Those are the three granulocytic neutrophils. And the color of those granules can be an indicator of whether or not there's something going on. When we look at a smear, we can see on a slide, we can see if there are cancer cells mixed in there. The the machines might count them as lymphocytes. It might count them as something different because some of the machines are based on cell size and nucleus to cytoplasm ratio. You know, that means the ratio of the guts to the actual membrane of the cell. And if it isn't a chemical reading, like the nothing can take away from the value of the human eye taking a look. What's happening in a urine? Like I found cancer cells in urine specimens. No machine would have picked them up. It would have been you're looking at. What, what do they look like? They look
0: angry. They look mean. They really do. And you've it's seen really a cool. lot of cells to know the difference, because I would probably yeah. have no idea what yeah, the they, difference is.
1: It's very interesting. They they really look angry in the way that they stain and um in the urines they're they're big and kind of unruly but see our dipsticks are designed to pick up neutrophils white blood cells and red blood cells they're not going to pick up any other kind of cell you'd have to see another abnormality in the urine like a protein protein is probably the next thing that would show up for them to even look at them anymore but it when i was in when i started out it was routine we looked at every single specimen that came into the department
0: as it should be that so, way yeah well we're never going to go back to the human eye
1: i don't know i think that you know the we the frontline doctors i'm actually part of a movement of of medicine in going back to it really being healthcare And it, I think we might see a return. It's going to be pretty slow, but you know, that's the doctor, the frontline doctor's mission is to take us back to healthcare. And and I'm working with a group that's actually trying to create a privatized health insurance where you have a choice of where your, your healthcare dollars are going. So we may go back to something that you and I have, have longed for in the care of our clients for a,
0: as long as we've been doing this. You needed to create some type of training or tutorial on how to read blood work. I, I can teach you what I know. I don't know anything about looking at the samples. Yeah. That's a whole nother world.
1: Well, some of the time, like the cytology, cytology is the science of looking, basically looking for cancer in all, any kind of specimen. So actually, if a doctor really suspected it, then they would send a urine for cytology. But it has to, you know, we need to, unfortunately, the way that the medical schools are set up now, doctors are like when now in the hospital where I used to work, you don't see your practitioner anymore. Once you go into the hospital, you're in the care of a hospitalist. A hospitalist has no connection to you as a human being. They come in, they do their eight-hour shift, they look at your lab results, they adjust what's in that bag that's dripping into your arm, and they go home at the end of the day and turn you over to another hospitalist who has no commitment to you. And that it's part of the way that the hospitals are managing to stay open, honestly. But between Medicare and in the insurance industry, they're really responsible for the quality of care that we have now because they dictate the standards. It's, it, it's really, really sad. But there is a pretty big movement of people who care enough that they're kind of taking back authority they're taking, Like the frontline doctors, there are thousands and thousands of doctors that have signed the Barrington Agreement when it comes to standing up against the way that this pandemic was handled. There are a lot of brave practitioners that have risked their, their reputations, their licenses, and in some cases, even their lives. There are doctors who died under suspicious causes during all of this. And um, they're they're brave and caring enough for all of us that they're standing up against things the changes that have gone against humanity. You know, it's our birthright to have the freedom of choice. God made us to heal, not dependent on drugs. Nobody has a has a xanax
0: deficiency. <laughs> Or a lipid deficiency. You know what I mean? Or a levothyroxine it's, it's deficiency. Not, that's right. That's yeah. right. That's yeah, there's great. a podcast you know- I did with Maddie Lansdowne, and he gets into it because he's living in Melbourne, Australia, where the tightest of tightest yeah. things have happened. And it blew my mind to hear his story. So whether it's, it's going to come out in September, um, mm-hmm. sometime around this episode, but listen into that, Maddie Lansdowne, because he he actually talks about the hospitals staging, how busy mm-hmm. they were when the media came. Mm-hmm. And that he, happened here. He and a colleague got canned because they went on Facebook Live mm-hmm. right after to prove that it got yep. staged. And it's yep. happening all over the world. And then it breaks yep. my heart to realize The repercussions from when people fell for it, now we're having to get jabbed because of it. And those of us like I'm sure you and I refuse Mm -hmm. what is being taken away from us because we decided to make that choice. Mm -hmm. I'll never go back on it, though. I don't care what happens. (laughs) Unless they're going to like jab me in the arm and I'm dead, I'll have to be dead because that's the only way it's going to go in my body.
1: Yeah, I actually stood up when I, and I'm, I'm really proud of this, but I've always been a rebel and then my, my managers hated it. But, um, because I always went against the tide and thought outside the box. But when I was doing blood bank, I was in charge of doses of Rogam. Um, Rogam is, um, anti D. It's to prevent pregnant women from developing antibody. That could harm their baby in future pregnancies. So we would give them an injection at two stages during their pregnancy, and it would prevent them from forming this antibody. It basically it causes you to reject your baby, you reject your fetus in future pregnancies. So it's it is an injection that can could be essential. But anyway, they were all um, preserved with mercury based thimerosal. And so, when I was put in charge of the of the decision making in that department, I went to I did the work to find grogam that was not preserved with thimerosol. And the manufacturers did you also, find
0: it?
1: it cost more, and I got a lot of flack, but I told them that I wouldn't issue it in any other way. So that's what we provided. But you know, the manufacturers actually say that no kind of injection or vaccine, is manufactured with thimerosal anymore they've
0: just changed the word
1: well they changed the word but the other thing is that doesn't mean that all of the backlog of stuff they have in the warehouse doesn't already have still have thimerosal. so you That's know true. they tell women who are pregnant not to well, have say to what nurse.
0: they want to say that doesn't mean it's the truth
1: yeah yep and so they, they, um, they tell women all during their pregnancy, don't have tuna fish more than once a week because... I was just going to give the, that exact example. <laughs> but on the day that a newborn is, is born, I don't even know how many vaccines they give now. Well, vaccines are supposed to stimulate you to create antibodies. Newborns can't even seroconvert anything into an antibody until they're three to six months old. So the only thing you're giving a newborn is toxins when you give them any kind of vaccine. It doesn't matter what it is because they're incapable of turning it
0: into antibody. Because they they have the newborn injections, the two-week injections, the two-month injections, the six-month. Like, by the time they're even three months old, how much crap are they getting in their body? Yeah, now by the time somebody reaches 18,
1: they're given as many as 72 72 injections. Just, it blows my mind. Just blows my mind. And back when my, I had my daughter, she had, she had a reaction. She had a pretty frightening, um, um, vaccine reaction. I think it was DPT one or maybe the MMR because it was at the same time. So I did a whole lot of research and I, I got a, a religious wow. waiver for her from getting future vaccines, and they'd give you a little heat in the doctor's office. You know, they'd say that I kind of implied that I was an irresponsible mother, but it was just a piece of paper that went into her school file. I I still had the right to make an independent choice on behalf of my child, but now everything has just changed so much.
0: I had to do some training because my, my little one's going into kindergarten this year. And in order for me to get the exemption, I had to do some stupid online training that it was literally a fear-based with every single question. Um gave me statistics about measles, polio, et cetera, et cetera. And then said like if there was a if there was to be an outbreak, those who were vaccinated could come back to school within two weeks or some some stupid things like this. But he couldn't come back in if he wasn't vaccinated for like two months. And I was just like, whatever, check the box, check the box, check the box, get it done, turn it in. And, and I think more and more what I from what I'm seeing is that people are, one, not following the CDC recommendation, and two, they're not talking about this stuff. I'm not going to go on Facebook and social media and say, hey, my kindergartner adds a vaccine exemption because I'm not going to get the backlash. But there are more people of us thinking like this and realizing, wait, they're telling me I can't eat tuna during pregnancy because it's loaded with mercury. And then the moment my baby is born, they're injecting, I don't even know how much mercury is going inside mm-hmm. their bodies. Where, Where is the common sense here? The minute that you question
1: it, you're accused of being an anti-vaxxer. And I'm not against vaccines. I just want you to do the work you're supposed to do to prove that they're safe and effective. And that they're not they don't have contaminants in them that
0: are known to be toxinogens and carcinogens. Not only safe and effective, but the the combinations that they're compiling them in, it's not just a polio, it's not just an uh measles, that's MMR and DPT. They're getting six in combination at once. And then they're wondering why we have so many kids with ADHD and ADD and autism, and I mean the list goes on and on and on. Type one diabetes, autoimmune like it's insane. And yes, I'm not blaming vaccines on this. I'm saying it is a big piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, the the other thing is, I remember back when I was pregnant, um, we were we were told back then um, that we couldn't be around anybody who had gotten the MMR vaccine because they were they were. Contagious. You could get the measles or mumps from them, actually, and rubella. You could get any of those three things from them, and yet they blame any time that there's an outbreak. It's always blamed on the people who are are
0: questioning the vaccine safety. Not but, vaccinated, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. All right, we could talk forever, but we've been going for quite yes. a while here. So, thanks for joining we'd us, get into these kind Margaret. Of scary areas. <laughs> I know. Thanks for joining me. We will catch up um on our next group call here. Cause she's in the ninety day program rocking it. And uh so is Jessica who's just joining us. All right. Well thank you for inviting me kindly. I appreciate it. Thanks, Margaret. See ya. Hasn't this season just been so good? We will end it right before Christmas on December 22nd and be back in January for more. Now, along with our incredible in-person event in this together live in Orlando, Florida, you have one last opportunity to come join me live over the virtual Zoom feed. December 13th and 14th is the final live Master Bloodwork event with a twist. December 13th and 14th block the dates, 1 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern both days. Go to the link below to learn more and register. You can also register for the conference right now and get your early bird pricing. All right, let's get going and let's impact the world one life at a time, one podcast episode at a time.